0: Today I'm continuing a special series teaching on Christian philosophy. And I tell you, this is uh, lighting my fire. (laughs) I'm excited about this. You know, I know some people think it's arrogant of me to think that my own teaching is good. But the way I look at it is, if this doesn't bless me, if I'm not excited about the things I'm teaching, I don't know why you should be. These are things that the Lord has used to literally provide a foundation in my life. This teaching that I've got about philosophy, you know, that word doesn't mean a lot to some people. I spent a lot of time last week explaining it, but it's just talking about your outlook on life, the way you look at life, the lens through which you view life. Whether you realize it or not, you have a philosophy. Whether you're a pessimist or an optimist, that's a philosophy. Whether you are an encourager or you're a person who's always down and depressed and you need everybody to bless you, that's because of the way you think. It's the way you process things. It's the lens that you look through. And we started with the scripture over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul said, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Not just individual thoughts, but an entire outlook, a system of thought, a way of looking at things. And then I've been using Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 where the serpent came and tempted Eve and he came and challenged the Word of God and began to sow doubt about the Word of God. If she would have just said, nope, this is what God said, we are not to eat of the tree, God said it, that settles it, end of discussion, over with. Did you know that she wouldn't have submitted to that temptation? And likewise, if we were to have a philosophy that God's word is accurate, it's inspired by God, it's accurate in every detail. Uh, Paul wrote the book of Galatians based on one letter of one word and not from the original documents but from a translation. That's how strongly he believed in the word of God and Jesus did the same thing. If we believe the Word of God to that detail, then you know what? When Satan comes at us and says, well, why don't you go do this? You could just sit there and say, nope, God said not to do that. God says this is off limits. God said don't do this. Well... But see, people go ahead and do it because they honestly don't put that much importance and faith and trust in what God says. Part of it is because they don't believe the accuracy of the Word of God. They bought into the lies that the critics have that the Word of God contradicts itself. Let me just use some of these statistics. And this is actually taken from this book that I have on Christian philosophy. And I go into great detail you know, I'm not a really a detailed person, and I think sometimes people get lost in the details. So I very seldom go and cite references and do things, but I'm going to be talking about some things here that I just don't have in my head. These are things that I've studied and I've heard this, but you know, unless it's Scripture, I just don't meditate on it enough to get it in my heart. So I have to refer to these things. But here is a quote from a Norman Geisler, and Frank Turk, and they wrote the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I love the title of that book. And here's a quote. They say, the New Testament documents have more manuscripts, earlier manuscripts, and more abundantly supported manuscripts than the best ten pieces of classical literature combined. Now, that's a big statement. The reason that's important is because the closer... Uh, well, let me say it this way. The more copies we have of ancient manuscripts and the closer that those documents were written to the original documents. You know, hardly any of these uh, documents that are thousands of years old do you have the original documents, but you've got copies of copies of copies. And so the more manuscripts you have and the closer that those manuscripts were written to the original work, the more accurate they are. That makes sense and I think that people understand that. Well, here's another quote. It says, The fact that so many copies of the New Testament scriptures have survived combined with the fact that they were written so closely to the original firmly establishes the historical accuracy of the scriptures we have today. What that means, let me just give you some comparisons here. Plato wrote some things in 427 through 347 BC, that was his lifespan. The earliest copies we have of his writings are 900 AD. So that's over 1,300 years later. The closest document that we have to his original document is over 13 well, excuse me, it's 1200 plus years, and there's only seven copies of Plato's work that we have in the entire world. Uh, these other people, I can't even pronounce all of their names, but this guy, I can't even pronounce his name. Starts with the T. He wrote things, and his uh, closest manuscripts are 1,300 years later with only eight copies left. Herodotus, I think, is the way you pronounce this guy. He lived 488 to 428 B.C., his earliest uh or closest copy is 900 A.D., which is 1,300 years later with only eight copies. And you can just continue to go through this. You know, Caesar wrote something in 58 through 50 B.C., and yet it was 900 A.D. is the closest copy that we have, and there's only 10 of those. So that's 900 years later. And you can go on down. Aristotle wrote in 384 B.C., and his closest copy is 1,400 years later, there's only 49 of those left. But when you come to the Greek copies of the New Testament, they were written in 50 to 100 A.D., and in 300 A.D., we have copies of those. So that's only 150 years later, and we have 5,686 copies of the Greek New Testament. So just comparing this, I mean, it is over like... A hundred times, ten to a hundred times as many copies, which allows us to check the accuracy. The period of time in between when the original was written and when the copies came is much less. And actually, if you were to go on down, here's another statement that I have in my book, that the early church fathers wrote prolifically about the New Testament scriptures. And they wrote between 90 and 160 A.D., So that's only 40 years, 30 to 40 years after the original were written. And here's a statement. It says, "...their familiarity with the New Testament Scriptures we still read today is proven by the fact that all but 11 verses from the New Testament were quoted in their writings." So if you were to include these other people who wrote about the Bible and quoted it, actually there's only a 30 to 40 year gap in between the original copies and the copies that we've based our Bible upon today. And so that is just phenomenal. I mean, the Word of God, the Bible has been verified and proven accurate in a way that no secular work ever has. And I believe that the reason for that is because God inspired it and God preserved the writing. And this just adds authenticity to scriptures. It makes a huge difference. You know, it says here, One small fragment of papyrus that has been discovered, known as the John Ryland's papyri, was written only 30 years after the original copy of John. So within 30 years, we have people verifying and validating and writing the exact same thing, quoting John, and that gives a uh, accuracy to the scriptures that no other book has. It's the fact that so many copies of the New Testament scriptures have survived, combined with the fact that they were written so closely to the originals, firmly establishes the historical accuracy of the scriptures we have today. Man, that is just pretty awesome. You know, if you just looked at it from a human perspective, the number of copies of scripture that we have combined with the closeness of those copies to the original documents and the fact that any differences are minuscule. I mean, they can be written off as just like a spelling error, minor details. Uh, All of this proves that the Scripture is not just a book like any other book. It's not just man's writings, what they feel about God, but God wrote through people just like those Scriptures I used in 2 Peter chapter 1 on our programs last week. Scholars have placed the comparative accuracy between the more than 5,600 manuscripts on Scripture at 99.5%. And did you know that those, that one half of 1% or yeah, one half of 1% differences many times in the Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar. I know a little Greek. I mean, he runs a laundromat, but other than that, uh, I'm not a Greek scholar. But the things that I understand, many of these differences are in the Greek. You know, you could have a letter formed and then there's a little dot or an asterisk above it. You know, this is what Jesus referred to that not one jot or one tittle will pass away until all be fulfilled. He was talking about those smallest little marks, these little accent marks, a little comma, a crossing of a T. He says those things will never pass away. That's how accurate the Word of God is. And when they say that there is one-half of 1% inaccuracies among some of these copies, that's what the majority of those are, just a little asterisk or somebody, somebody forgot to put it there, but the context makes it obvious what was trying to be communicated. And so when you put all of this together, all of this is saying that the Word of God has been inspired by God and preserved in a way that no other document in history has ever been preserved. And if people were truly objective, and let me just again say that people have a philosophy, a bias, a prejudice through which they look at everything. They don't want to believe that the Word is accurate to that degree because if it was and if the Bible is divinely inspired and if all of these things that I'm saying are true, then they would be accountable because the Bible is available to people. God would hold us accountable for what He's communicated and written and people do not want to be held to this standard. People want to do their own thing. They don't. They look at the Bible as being restrictive, and you're raining on my parade, and you're keeping me from doing things. And so, people have a prejudice. Of course, the unbelievers, in a sense, you could understand their prejudice because they haven't committed their life to God. God is, uh, you know, going to come in and restrain the amount of things that they feel free to do. And so, they've got a prejudice, a bias, a philosophy against it. But sad to say, most Christians have bought into that same philosophy. And many of you were raised that the Word of God isn't accurate. It cannot be trusted. It's vague. It may have some inspiration in it. It is a sacred book. But many people look at the Bible the way they look at my books. And man, there's a huge difference. My books, I believe, are inspired. God has touched my life and inspired me, and I believe God speaks to, th- to people through my books, but I would never claim that it is accurate down to the last dotting of an I or crossing of a T and that every single word is perfect and things like that. You know, if you're looking for something wrong in my teaching, I probably got something for you. Amen? I am not perfect. I don't do everything perfectly, but I believe that the Bible is perfect. It's different than my books. It's different than any other book. And sad to say, most people watching this program have adopted a philosophy, a paradigm, a worldview, a way of looking at things that does not include the absolute infallibility of Scripture. And because of that, you're like Eve. That when Satan comes, he will come to you and he'll begin to challenge the Word of God. Do you really believe that we have to live by this standard today? Do you really believe it? We're modern people and now we don't need to live by these archaic rules and we don't need to do these things anymore. And you know what? There's many people that will be susceptible to that temptation the same way that Eve was susceptible to it because it wasn't firsthand information to her. She hadn't personalized it. You need to take the Word of God and you need to personally make these things that we're talking about true and you need to settle this about is the Word actually inspired a God, is it accurate or isn't it accurate? And again, I'm giving you some of these statistics about these other manuscripts to show that the Word of God is accurate. You know, here's another thing, that within 150 years of Jesus' life, 10 non-Christian writers, these are non-Christians, these aren't religious people, these are secular, non-Christian writers such as Josephus and others. Josephus is very well known as a historian who is... uh, commissioned by the Roman government to write a history of the Jewish people for the Roman people. So Josephus and others, uh, within 150 years of Jesus' life, there were 10 non-Christian writers mentioned Jesus. Over that same time span, only nine mentioned the Roman emperor who ruled during Jesus' life, Tiberius Caesar. So not even considering Christian authors, Jesus is more documented than the Roman emperor. There is actually more information written by secular people to confirm the details of Jesus' life than there are to confirm Tiberius Caesar. I know some people are going to be shocked at that, but those are stats. That's facts. Did you know that there are more secular accounts of the resurrection of Jesus than there are that Tiberius Caesar reigned? Some of you are shocked by that, but that's an accurate statement. I actually read one. I have it in this book. I'm not going to spend time to read all of this, but it's a lengthy quote from a first-century writer about the Christians, and Nero blamed them for burning Rome, and he was writing about their terrible deeds and how that they were you know, uh, ungodly, and he just criticizes them. It's not favorable at all, and yet he mentions in here their popular belief about Jesus or Christus is what the word that he uses and how he was raised from the dead and through him people's blind eyes are opened. deaf ears. And it confirms all of the things that are in Scripture. Here's a person who's antagonistic confirming all of these kind of things. That's pretty good. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946 to 57 is when they excavated those and those were down around the Dead Sea and they found these Scriptures they found an entire book of Isaiah that had been copied out by these Essenes who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. This became known as the Great Isaiah Scroll. And it is dated 100 B.C. is when these were written. And so that is a thousand years earlier than the previous copies we had of the book of Isaiah. And yet, even though there is a thousand years in between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the, and the copies that were used to actually write the Bible, did you know that the differences between there, I forget the exact number right now, but it was just minuscule differences. And like I said earlier, primarily the differences were an asterisk, an exclamation point, an emphasis point, a dotting of an I, a crossing of a T. There was not any substance difference between these manuscripts that were a thousand years apart. And here's another thing that the Dead Sea Scrolls One of Some of the critics of the Bible said that the prophecies about Jesus, which are so accurate and detailed and fulfilled to the very last, I mean the very last detail of them was fulfilled. But they were so detailed that people just thought it could not have been written prior to the time of Jesus. And since the earliest copies we had of Isaiah's, Prophecy were written after, copied out after the time of Jesus. Critics have said that these were added later because it could not have happened in advance. But when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were exactly the same as the copies we had of Isaiah, and yet they were written a hundred years before Jesus' birth, they were copied out at that time, then that proves beyond any doubt that these prophecies were truly inspired by God they weren't just men writing these things because there is a copy we now have that predates the time of Jesus and yet it collaborates verifies word for word uh you know uh letter for letter everything that Isaiah said man i don't know if you're following my thinking again some people get lost in the details But the point I'm trying to get across is that the Word of God is accurate and preserved in numbers, in closeness to the time of the original documents being written in a way that no other book in history has ever been preserved. I mean, it's not even close. It is supernatural. All of these evidences, if a person would look at them, verify that the Word of God has been divinely inspired and protected and um you know spread supernaturally by God. God is in this book. And it's a shame to me how many people do not put that authority in the word of God. You know, it bothers me also when ministers come up and they will be reading something. And they'll read a word and they'll say, "Oh, that was mistranslated here. Here's what it should be." And they just sit here and trash the Bible. Now, I will admit that there are some things, like for instance, I'm, I'm not going to go into great detail on this, but uh, in the, in the uh, New Testament, the word baptize, did you know that there was no such word as baptize when the Bible was translated? When it was first translated, the King James Bible, there was no such word as baptize. This comes from a Greek word, a baptizo, and that word means to dunk or to immerse to submerge. And yet the practice of the church in England at the time that the King James Bible was being translated wasn't immersion, but it was sprinkling. And so they didn't want to say that Jesus went down and was dumped or submerged in the Jordan River because that would have been hard on their religious traditions. And so they what they did, they just what they call transliterated the word they took the Greek word baptizo and transliterated it and made a new English word baptize and that way, that word wouldn't really convey the full meaning, it wouldn't offend people, and yet it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't be contrary to what the Greek was saying. At least they had enough integrity that when they didn't want to just say what it truly said, they just made up a new word. And today we have the word baptize and it means different things to different people. But in the original Greek, it meant to submerge, to dip. And so there are things like that that happen. But again, if you look at the context of it, Jesus went down into the Jordan River and was baptized. It says that John was baptizing there because there was much water. If all he did was sprinkle people the way some denominations do today, you wouldn't have needed much water. You could have done it from a little canteen. You just could have got your fingers wet and sprinkled it on the people the way that they do today. If you use your brain for anything besides a hat rack, you can see these apparent problems in Scripture and you can understand what it was really saying and it doesn't change The Word of God. I believe that the Bible has been supernaturally inspired and even though God used man, if you take it as a whole, you are going to see the truth of God's Word and I believe that I can trust God's Word 100%. That's a philosophy. That's a way of looking at things. And I know that many of you don't share my philosophy. And you're entitled to your philosophy, but I'm not going to agree with it or we'd both be wrong. I'm telling you that this is the right Christian philosophy. If Eve would have had this philosophy and if she would have said, God said it, that settles it. End of discussion. You know what? She wouldn't have submitted to this temptation. But she allowed a talking snake to plant doubt in her about whether God was accurate in what He said. She allowed doubt. She entertained doubt about God's Word. And I tell you, you need to have a philosophy that God's Word is true. Romans chapter 3 verse 4 says, Let God be true and every man a liar. And if you would have that philosophy and just live your life by what God's Word says and not lean under your own understanding, not lean under the interpretation in the way that the majority of people do it in our society today, but if we were to live our life by the Word of God, I guarantee you it would stop Satan's temptation dead in his tracks. It would just stop him. That's powerful. And I've been sharing a lot of things. Most Christians do not really believe in the complete infallibility of Scripture. They believe that the Word of God contains little bits and pieces from God, but it was written by man. Therefore, it's wrong. It's got errors. There are fallacies. Some things, like for instance, I'm not trying to be against any person, but this is an actual quote that Bill Clinton the previous president of the United States was asked by a reporter, he claimed to be a Christian and yet he supported gay marriage, he supported abortion, he supported all kinds of things that are completely contrary to what the scripture has to say. And they asked him, how can you claim to be a Christian and yet have these views? And you know what Bill Clinton's answer was? He says, well, the Bible was written hundreds of years ago. And it was appropriate for them and for that time. But it doesn't apply to us today. These things are not for us. They're outdated and we now live in a modern society. And basically, he explained away the Word of God. If that is the type of philosophy that you have, you are just open prey to the devil. That means you don't have any anchor for your belief system. It's just whatever's happening. You're just going with every wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. You are going to fail. That is not right. And yet it's amazing how many Christians do not have their belief system anchored to anything. They use the Word of God maybe as one influence in their life, but it is not the final authority. You know, when I first got really turned onto the Lord, I got born again when I was eight years old, but when I was 18... I had a dramatic encounter with the Lord. And I mean, I became fanatical because I encountered God in a supernatural way. And I just, I mean, every thought was totally focused on God. I All I cared about was God and seeking God. I became a stark, raving, mad fanatic overnight. And you know what? I was just going whole hog for God. And then I began to start getting criticism. And did you know there was an, actually a period of time after I had this miraculous encounter with the Lord where somebody just got me and said, you are so stupid. You are basing your life on Scripture and that Scripture is not valid for us today. And it was a, it was a Christian. It was a person who said, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but it's not literal. You can't trust all of it. It's got mistakes in it. It was written by man, and he basically just tried to cut my legs out from under me. And did you know that I sat down and I thought, how do I know that the Bible really is accurate? I was raised to believe it, but how do I know for me that it's accurate? And for about one week... I entertained these thoughts and wondered about how could I trust the Word of God? How could I be as fanatical about things as what I am? And I struggled, and I tell you, it was probably one of the worst weeks of my entire life. And this is after I had this miraculous encounter with God and knew His love for me. But I began to start having all of that siphoned away from me as i begin to doubt the accuracy of the word and i i struggled with this and i prayed and there, there's a lot of things that happened but one of the things that just changed my life and put that question that i had to rest didn't come from outside any of the sources that we've been talking about i've been quoting you know other sources and showing how many copies of the old uh, manuscripts are left, left how close they are to the original manuscripts. It wasn't any of that stuff. You know the thing that really convinced me on the accuracy of the Word of God? It was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that were that were fulfilled in the New Testament. And I began to start studying this and looking at the specific way that they were fulfilled and it just overwhelmed me. And this is the thing that actually drove the nail in the coffin of my doubts about the accuracy of the Word of God. There are actually over 300 prophecies that I've identified that Jesus fulfilled perfectly. I mean not partially, but perfectly. Here's some of them. In Psalms chapter 16, verse 10, it says he would not see corruption. And that was actually fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. That was talking about him, his body not decaying. And he was raised from the dead and his body did not decay and go to the grave. He rose from the dead. That is miraculous. You know, just the fact that Jesus, it was prophesied that the Messiah would come and die and be raised from the dead. I I don't know what more you need than that. But that's just one of over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. It said that he would feel forsaken in Psalms chapter 22, verse 1. It says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus actually cried that out on the cross, and it was fulfilled. You know, that was written over 400 years before Jesus came. How could anybody understand that God would feel forsaken? You know what? It was unclear, and it took a lot of faith on Isaiah's part to write that, but he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says in Psalms chapter 22, verses 7 and 8, that he would be mocked and ridiculed, that they would spit in his face and pluck out his hairs and do all of these things. Of course, that was fulfilled at the crucifixion of Jesus. Psalms chapter 22, verse 16 says, His hands and His feet would be pierced. Did you know that this was hundreds of years before the Roman method of crucifixion was invented and used? And yet Isaiah wrote that His hands and feet would be pierced. And of course, that was fulfilled at crucifixion. Psalms chapter 22, verse 18, They would cast lots for His clothing. You know, this is very specific. And it says uh, in that Psalms 22a that they would uh, part his raiment above among themselves and cast lots for his cloak. Now see, that's specific because Jesus was wearing just basically some plain clothes. They they stripped him and they ripped his clothes into pieces. But when it came to his outer cloak, that was a very expensive piece of clothing that was woven from uh, the head all the way down, and there was no seams in it, and so it made it a very special uh, piece of clothing. I don't know if that's something he had or if that's what the Roman soldiers placed on him as they mocked him. But anyway, he was wearing a garment like that. And so, because of that, the soldiers literally tore his robe and stuff and, and separated it and split it among themselves. But they didn't want to split that cloak, so they cast lots for it, fulfilling Psalms chapter 22, verse 18, down to the last detail. That's just amazing. You know, there are just so many of these. His bones would not be broken. He would be falsely accused. He would be hated without cause. He'd be betrayed by a close friend. This was a very specific uh, prophecy about Judas betraying him. He would be given vinegar mixed with gall to drink. That is exactly what happened on the cross. They looked on Him, would wag their heads. That was said in Psalms 109, and that was fulfilled at the crucifixion of Jesus. He would conquer death by resurrection. That was prophesied in a number of different places. Psalms chapter 49, and it was fulfilled in Jesus. And it just goes on and on. I could... uh, mentioned so many of these. Here's one of the last ones, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. It says, He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and it would be used to buy a potter's field. This is exactly the amount. It is exactly what happened. They, When Judas gave them back the 30 pieces of silver, they said this is blood money. We can't put it into the treasury. So they went and bought a potter's field to bury strangers in. And yet this was prophesied hundreds of years before that it would happen exactly the way that it did. You know, I was a math major in college, my brief one year in college. And we studied the laws of probabilities. And you know, once something gets up to a certain level of impossibility, it's mathematically impossible that that could happen. And yet the the chances of Jesus fulfilling over 300 prophecies down to the last detail, I mean minute details were fulfilled exactly. It is astronomical. It is billions and billions and billions of times greater than what the secular world considers to be possible. So the fact that all of these things happened is proof that Jesus is who He said He was, that the Word of God is accurate. It wasn't just written by man. It was inspired of God. Let me just read some of these things to you. Uh, this is going to amaze you. But it says, One mathematician famously calculated that the poss- uh, probability of just eight of these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled accidentally as one in one hundred quadrillionth. That equals ten to the seventeenth power, a number beyond comprehension. In other words, the odds that the fulfilling those things could have happened by chance is one in one hundred quadrillionth. And that's just concerning these eight prophecies. A man who was born in Bethlehem would have a prophet go before him and prepare his way, that he would be ruler who entered Jerusalem on a donkey be betrayed by a friend, and that betrayal would result in wounding his hands, that he would be betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver. Those 30 pieces of silver would later be thrown on the temple floor and used to buy a potter's field when he was on, on trial for his life. And though innocent, he would make no defense. He would be one of the few men in all of history who was killed by crucifixion. The odds of all of those eight things happening to any one man is one to the ten to the seventeenth power or one uh, to the one hundredth quadrillion. That is just astronomical. And you know, when I was struggling with how do I know that the word is true? And I looked at this and I looked at the fulfillment of prophecy. For me, this is the thing that just established that this is not a man-made document. This is God-breathed just the way it says over there in Second Peter chapter 1 that these things came from God. And I tell you, I just laid to rest those doubts and reservations. And since that time, I've had a philosophy that says that the Word of God is accurate. There's some things in there that sometimes it's hard for me to understand, but I now believe that the Word is accurate. That's my philosophy, and if I'm struggling, it's not the Word that's wrong. It's my little peanut brain that is having trouble understanding it. You know, at one time I had a legal pad of paper and I had written down hundreds of scriptures that to me looked contradictory to each other. But again, I had this philosophy that I know that the Word of God is accurate. It's not the Word that's wrong. It's me that's not understanding something. And I wrote these things down and I began to study them. And I didn't get the answers all at once. You have to have foundational truths before you can understand some other things. And some of the things that I was wanting revelation on, it was like a ladder that they were up here and I was still down here in my understanding. I just couldn't understand it. So I would kind of set them aside and then I'd go back and revisit these things every once in a while. And as I grew in my understanding of the Word, I'd go back and revisit these things and see how this fit perfectly. This is what that verse means. This is a compliment, not a contradiction to other things. And I've basically checked most of those things off my list. I still don't understand everything in Scripture. I'm still learning. But I have seen so many things happen that I know I'm on the right track. You know, it's like having a thousand-piece puzzle. And back in the beginning, I only had five or six pieces that fit together. And I had uh, 999 pieces or whatever that didn't fit, and I was just struggling. Now... I've got maybe 950 of those thousand pieces to fit together. I've still got some things that don't seem to fit, but I can see the picture. I know I'm on the right track and I just keep dealing with it and I'll see how things fit. If I live long enough, I'll eventually get it worked out. And this has just transformed my life, this approach. Let me illustrate some of these things. To show you how large this number, one in 100 quadrillion is. Let me use this illustration. This is uh from the website. We got this off a guy's website. It says to give you a sense of how large a number one hundred quadrillion is, consider this. If you had one hundred quadrillion dollars and you spent one million dollars every second of every day, it would take you three thousand one hundred and sixty eight years to spend all of that money. Here's another example. if you stacked $1 bills on top of each other, 100 quadrillion dollars would make 73 separate stacks of bills stretching the 93 million miles from Earth to the sun, pretending that the sun, that the heat of the sun didn't incinerate the paper bills. Let's say that somewhere in those 73 stacks is a single dollar bill marked with a black X. Imagine a ladder that leans up against those stacks of bills and stretches all the way to the sun. Now get on that ladder and start climbing. Stop anywhere you want along the 93 million miles and pull a single bill from any one of the 73 stacks. The chances that you will pick the $1 bill with a black X on it are the same chances that any man could have accidentally fulfilled eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled as the Messiah. You know, to me, that's profound. Any person who believes that you could do that just randomly, I tell you what, I got a bridge that I'd love to sell you. If you can believe that, you would believe anything. This is just astronomical the laws of probability that show just eight of these 300 plus prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And I don't know, I'm not a uh, smart enough guy to figure this out, but if you were to just not limit this to the eight prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, but if you were to expand it to the 340 or 60 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, then that number would just continue to escalate to such a degree that I don't even, I'm not sure that anybody could even calculate that. I'm not sure that we would have ways of even trying to illustrate it. This, this illustration of these 73 stacks of $1 bills stretched for 93 million miles, we can't understand that. That's still beyond our comprehension. And yet Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. If you are objective, if you don't already have a philosophy that has discounted the Word of God and you just refuse to believe anything different, If you were to be open and evaluate what I've just said, and if these things are true, which they are, then you would have to come to the conclusion that the Word of God is accurate in a much greater detail than you've ever given it, that it is not a man-made book. It is a God-inspired book, and that would become your philosophy. And if you had that as a philosophy... If that was your paradigm, your worldview, you looked at it and you thought, God, this book is inspired by you. It is not a human book. This is you writing to me. If you approached it with that attitude and read it, it would change your life. I actually was listening to a talk show one time and they were discussing some moral issue. And anyway, a person called in and started quoting the Bible. And the moderator in this thing says, now wait a minute. We're just going to stick with facts. We aren't getting into the Bible. That little statement right there just was a slap at the Word of God that it's not factual, it's not accurate, it's just opinion, it's religious belief system, but it's not based in reality. That is not true. The Word of God is more accurate than science is. It's more accurate than anything else. But some of you, see, have a philosophy that you don't believe that. You've discounted it, and I'm presenting some things to you that you're struggling with. You know, if you are a pessimist, and if that is your philosophy, well, then when something happens, you're going to find a way to look at the negative side of it. If you're an optimist, and if that's your philosophy, you will find a positive way to work this thing around. Those are philosophies. And I showed from Genesis chapter 3 that this is how Satan came against Adam and Eve. He didn't come and force them, but he came. And the first thing he did was attack their belief in what God had said. He had told them not to eat of the tree because in the day that they ate thereof, they would surely die. And so I've been making this point that we need to have a philosophy that God's word is true. And it's accurate. It's our standard. It's the plumb line by which we compare everything else to and we don't deviate from God's Word. That is so simple. But that is profound. I have people come to me all the time and say, God told me to do this. Like, for instance, come to Bible college, but... I'm just a few years away from retirement, but I, I it's a bad market. If I sold my house, I might lose money on it. But if I come out to Colorado, am I going to have a job? And they just give me all of these different things, and they'll tell me 10 or 15 things that are standing in their way, and then they'll say, so what do I do? And I said, you lost me the moment you said God told you to do it. If God told you to do it, that's the Word of God, and you just do it. And it doesn't matter. I've had people before say, but I'm, I'm homeless. I'm living on the street. How can I come out there? I said, we got streets. Come out here and sleep on one of our streets. <laughs> Amen. I don't believe it has to be that way, but I'm just saying, if God tells you to do something, you just do it. If it hair lips the devil, if it causes problems, I don't care who gets upset about it. If God tells you to do it, you just do it. And God's Word is His instructions to us. And I've exalted His Word above my own opinion, above the opinion of anybody else. And because of that, when Satan comes and tempts me and says, has God's Word really said? I just say, yes. And that's the end of the discussion. And that's the end of the temptation. That is so simple. This really simplifies your life. Again, I encourage you to get my book, which has all of these charts, all of these graphs, all of these statistics in it. The Bible proves itself to be accurate just by the uh, thousands and thousands of prophecies that have been fulfilled. So, we've already looked at those prophecies concerning Jesus. You know, here's some other things. There's lots of prophecies in the Bible. Here's a prophecy that was given about Cyrus before he was ever born. Let me read this to you out of Isaiah chapter 44 and in verse 28. And I tell you, I love this prophecy. I've studied a lot about Cyrus and secular uh, things, but here in the Bible, it prophesied in Isaiah chapter forty-four and verse twenty-eight. It says, "Thus saith that uh, that say." Let me back up to verse twenty-seven. That saith to the deep, "Be dry, and I will dry up uh, thy rivers." That saith of Cyrus, "He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure." "...even saying to um, Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid." Now, if you put all of this in his context, this prophecy was about the Jews being led into captivity and going into Babylon, and yet he prophesied that there would arise a king named Cyrus who would say to go to Jerusalem and lay the foundation and rebuild the temple." This prophecy was given, let me see if I have the statistics here, I don't have the exact time, but it was 200 or so years before Cyrus was born, and yet Isaiah prophesied that he would come, prophesied his name, prophesied exactly what he would do, and it came to pass exactly the way it was said. Again, if you weren't biased, if you didn't have a philosophy that had been influenced by the world to believe that people who just believe in the accuracy of the Bible, they're religious fanatics they they got their head in the sand, they aren't dealing with reality. If you were to be objective, man, this would elevate the Bible in your opinion tremendously. Here's another prophecy about Jeroboam, and Jeroboam was the first king of the northern ten tribes of Israel. They had a civil war. It actually wasn't a war, but they did split. And Jeroboam became the king of the northern ten tribes, which was called Israel. And then the southern two tribes, with David and Solomon, and then Rehoboam, his son, reigned over. That was called Judah. And these northern ten tribes, Jeroboam was their king, and he saw that the people who had separated from the main body of... Uh, Israel, down in the southern part, they still had the temple, Solomon's temple. And because of this, these Jews were wanting to travel down to Rehoboam's kingdom. And because of that, he saw that this was undercutting his authority and so Jeroboam, the king of the northern tribes, he decided to build his own place of worship and he sanctified these unholy people and just chose the basest people that he could find and they began to offer sacrifices on this altar that he had built. And while he was offering these sacrifices, a prophet from the land of Judah came up to Israel, and here's what he said. He said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall, be, shall he offer the priest of the high places that burnt incense upon thee, and man's bones shall be burnt upon thee. That's First Kings chapter 13 And verse 2, so this prophet prophesied that this would happen. And when he prophesied this, immediately the altar just split in two. The ashes poured out. And Jeroboam got so mad at this prophet for ruining his religious observance that he stuck his arm out like this and he says, seize that man. And when he did, his arm froze in place. He couldn't pull it back. And so he realized that, man, this was supernatural. And he called out to this prophet and he says, pray for me. And the prophet prayed for him and God restored his arm. But anyway, it's a long story. And about 300 years later, a king that came to the southern kingdom of Judah, his name was Josiah, and he was out executing The uh, judgments of the Lord, he was a man who turned to God and he was out getting rid of the homosexuals out of the land. He was purifying the worship of the Lord. And in his zeal, he came to this place and he saw this altar that was all broken up 300 years after it had happened. And he said, what is this? And they said, this is the altar that Jeroboam used to offer sacrifices and try and keep the people from going down to Jerusalem to worship in Solomon's temple. And when he heard that, he took the bones of those prophets that had offered those sacrifices. He dug them up and he put a fire on that altar and he burnt those prophets' bones on that altar 300 years after it was prophesied that his name, what his name would be and exactly what he would do. I tell you, things like that just bless me. This is not a human book. This is not just a book about God. This is a God book that He wrote. And those prophecies to me just um, verify the accuracy of the Word of God. And like I shared that I had a struggle for maybe a week or so, somebody just attacked me and I began to doubt the accuracy of the Word. And I, I mean, it was a miserable miserable time, and yet when I saw these prophecies and I started studying this and seeing how prophecies were supernaturally uh, fulfilled, then you know what? It just laid to rest my doubt. And since that time, I've had this philosophy, a belief system, that God's Word is accurate in every detail. And if it looks to me like something doesn't fit in there, it's not the Word that's wrong, it's me that's wrong. And I have lived by that, and I have seen apparent contradictions in the Word of God resolved hundreds and hundreds of times. There is no way that just a book written by men could have been this specific, could have prophesied all of these things, and have come to pass hundreds of years later. You know, sometimes I hear people quote Nostradamus, and they quote some of his prophecies, and I've actually read some of his prophecies. But, you know, they're just so vague. I don't know how to describe this. I'm not against Nostradamus. I really don't know enough about him to say if he was really a godly man or ungodly. I just have heard his name. I've read some of those prophecies. But the prophecies that he gave are vague. I mean, they're about these fires and these storms. And people say, well, that that's a nuclear blast. And they have to interpret it and read this into it. Nostradamus never did anything like saying there's going to be a person born named Josiah who will go to this exact spot, who will dig up the bones, who will offer their bones as sacrifices upon this altar. Nostradamus never prophesied that there would be a king born. This will be his name and he got it exactly correct and said he will give an order to people who are living in captivity, who their nation has been in captivity for I don't know, 300 plus years, and he's going to say go back and build the temple and lay the foundation and he's going to uh, finance it. There's nothing like that. There is no comparison between any quote-unquote prophecy predictions of anybody and what the Word of God says. I tell you, that is, for me, evidence enough that the Word of God is inspired. And so that got me back on track. But let me just say this, that you know what really convinces me that the Word of God is inspired is because it inspires me. I've tried it. You ought to give it a chance. If it's really inspired by God, if God speaks through these pages the way that I'm testifying, then why don't you read it and give God a chance to speak to you? I'd like to issue this challenge to you that you ought to read the Bible cover to cover. And you can get whatever translation you want, but read the Bible and read it saying, can these things be so? Instead of just reading it looking for something and trying to pick it apart, read it with an open heart and say, God, if you're real, if this is really you, then speak to me. I challenge you to do that. And if you're really going to be honest, you couldn't be critical of it if you've never read it. So I challenge you to read it and check it out. And you know what if you would do that I believe by the time you got from Genesis to Revelation your life would be changed you would have been touched by God you would know that this is more than a physical book that this is God speaking to us so I believe that the Bible's inspired because it's inspired me it's changed my life I just I can't understand how people go through life thinking that you have to come to these you know, uh, monumental decisions just based on your own wisdom. Just lean unto your own understanding. You know, the Scripture says, Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Man, I live by that verse. I've gone to the Word of God and I read what the Word says and I have learned that those things were written for my learning, for my admonition. All of these things. It says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, twice in, uh, I think it's around verses 6 through 11, it says all of these things that were written in the Old Testament were written for our learning and for our instruction, so that we through them might learn not to blaspheme and learn not to lust after evil things and learn not to murmur and complain. They were written for our instructions. And you know what? If you don't take the instructions of the Word of God and you just depend on hard knocks to teach you all of life's lessons, you know what? I've learned not to commit adultery, not because I've ever gone out and committed adultery and firsthand experienced the hurt and the pain and all of these kind of things. I've read about people like David, and I saw what that adultery cost him. I saw the suffering and the hurt. And you know what? I don't want it. I've learned through that. And praise God, I've learned that there's a better way than lusting and living like a cat or a dog. Man, I've learned these things through God's word. That's what these things are given. You know, it says over in 1 Timothy chapter three. Let me look this up because I sometimes get this confused whether it's first or second Timothy. It's uh second Timothy chapter three and in verse sixteen. It says, uh, "...all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works." Man, that is a powerful passage of Scripture. It's inspired by God, and it's given to us for instruction, for reproof, for correction, There's a lot of people, there's even Christians who say that you can't learn everything you need through the Word of God. you got to go out here and God judges you and gives you hardship, puts sickness on you, causes your marriage to fail, causes your dog to bite you, your car breaks down. This is God breaking you and humbling you and they just think that you have to experience tribulation before you can grow. Well, you know, my answer to that is that if tribulation is what makes you perfect, then the people who've suffered the most ought to be the most perfect. And that certainly is not true. This says that the Word of God is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine and for reproof. And the next verse says that the man of God may be perfect. This means complete, mature. In other words, you don't need plan B or plan C. You don't need something else to perfect you. The Word of God will make you perfect and complete in every area of your life. You know, again, I offer myself as an example. I am not a perfect example. I'm still not the person that I should be, but I'm not the person that I used to be. And I can guarantee you this, that God has transformed my life through the Word of God. Any good thing that's in me, I've learned through the Word. You know what? I don't have very much knowledge outside of the Word of God. I probably should have more knowledge in what I do. I don't know. But I'm just saying that when I saw these truths that I've been sharing with you and I saw how important the Word of God is, I have poured myself into the Word of God. I poured the Word of God into me day and night for 44 years. I've been studying the Word and living by it. And it has transformed my life. I was an absolute introvert. and You know, some people think, well, that's just your personality. That's a character trait. The Word of God won't affect that. Boy, the Word of God totally changed my personality. Now, most people would consider me to be an extrovert to the max. And yet, I guarantee you, my natural tendency is to be an introvert. But the Word of God taught me what that was. He showed me that it was actually pride, selfishness. I was only thinking about myself. And I took Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, and it literally has killed that being an introvert in my life. It's changed my life in that area. I've seen supernatural miracles flow through me. God has given me wisdom time and time and time again. I mean hundreds, thousands of times. God has spoken to me through His Word and given me direction. I made mention of this earlier. But in 2000, I started on television and our ministry began to grow. But in January of 2002, the Lord showed me that I was hindering what He could do through me because of my small thinking. I had lived in obscurity for so long. I had lived with hardship and just barely getting by and barely having enough money for so long that I just had a poverty mentality. I had a, a small mentality. And that the, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. And my small thinking was limiting God. God spoke to me through Psalm seventy eight forty one to tell me I was limiting the Holy One of Israel. And when I saw that, I let the Word of God dominate me. And I told my staff, I said, I don't know how long it takes to change. I don't know if it's a week, a month, a year, five years, ten years. I don't know, but I'm going to change the way I think on the inside. I am going to start believing consistent with what God is speaking to me through His Word. And I mean, my life began to change dramatically. And here we are ten years later and our ministry has just exploded things that are happening now I couldn't have even dreamed of back then and you know what all of that was occasioned through the word I don't know how I don't have the words to put into uh to say this any better than what I'm saying except that I'm telling you that a philosophy that you need to have if Adam and Eve would have had this philosophy that God's word is absolute in our life We will not second-guess God. We will not lean unto our own understanding and think we know more than God does and we're going to just choose which parts we want to believe. If they had made the decision that God said it, that's it. Serpent, you're through. I'm not listening to anything contrary to God's Word. Did you know that they wouldn't have entered into that sin? And there are some of you saying, oh, well, I believe the Word of God. Well, do you believe the Scripture? It says, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. If you really believe that, then you know what? You would be a giver. And yet there are some of you who are saying, Oh, I'm, I'm born again. I believe if I die, I'm going to heaven. I believe in the Bible. I trust it. And yet you lean under your own understanding. You think, I need this money. You are going to do what you, you're following your own logic more than you are the logic of the Bible, and yet you say you believe in it. I'm saying this in love. I'm not malicious in saying this, but you don't believe God's Word. You trust your own opinion better. You only give when it's convenient. The Bible says, that "...by his stripes you're healed." And many of you may pray for that, but you don't really. You've never taken the word and seen yourself well. You've never seen Psalms 91 that no plague is going to come nigh my dwelling. A thousand will fall on my right side or ten thousand in my right hand, but it shall not come nigh me. Only with my eyes will I see the reward of the wicked. I, it's not going to happen to me. There's some of you that don't believe those things, and yet you say you believe the Bible. I'm telling you, we need to get to where the Word of God dominates and controls us. That's the very first philosophy that I believe a Christian should have, that God's Word is absolute. It's the plumb line. You don't question it. If you don't understand it, it's your understanding that's the problem, not the Word of God. And if you'd make that decision, I tell you, it'd serve you well.